Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political and culture analysis, along with the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links provided in the show notes, which are available at any time if you go to the episode information. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better to go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star reviews help boost us in front of other listeners and readers and help them find me like you did. And I look forward, as always, from hearing back from you guys. In this week's show, we're going to continue covering the two stories that are inundating every part of the news cycle right now. The protests that are happening as a result of the killing of George Floyd and the coronavirus. In the first segment, we'll talk about some of the ideas that you have to have in order to keep straight in your mind everything that's happening around these protests, because there are some things that people like to use to sort of disprove another side, even though there are true points on both sides. So you kind of have to keep those in straight. I've talked about this before, but we're going to get a little bit into the Chaz situation in Seattle. So I wanted to cover some ground on the on the front end, talking about some of the true and untrue ideas that you need to keep in mind. And then in the last segment, we'll go through the latest on the coronavirus and how protests may be or may not be interacting with the virus. But before that, I have a quick hit segment that I want to hit today. I want to talk about the media's reaction to Mitt Romney marching in a Black Lives Matter march. So this is another situation where we have the the strange, strange new respect that the media and people on the left have for Mitt Romney. So if you didn't see it, Mitt Romney went out, and I believe he was in D.C., and he was marching with one of the protests that was happening there over Black Lives Matter. And he had on a mask, and he was saying to reporters who were there that Black Lives did matter, and we needed to focus more on that issue. So Democrats and people on the left said this was great, and they praised him for it, and they specifically you know, said they were glad to see him on the right side of history and that they hoped more of the Republicans in Congress would be like him. And this respect that he's getting here, it's similar to what happened during the impeachment hearings and elsewhere. They have this new respect for him because they now believe that they can use him as a battering ram against others, not because he's taking a principled stand— even though he's taken those his entire life, but because they can use him. Because in 2012, the same people who are making all these comments now were saying things like Mitt Romney is a sexist, Mitt Romney is a racist, and the attacks went on and on and on. Then he was a thief and, and just everything. And this happened you know, after he had the moment in one of the debates where he mentioned that he had binders full of women, talking about all of the women that he would raise up in a Romney administration, and they mocked him relentlessly for that and used that as a means of calling him a sexist. And when I say them and who is doing this, I don't just mean the Obama campaign. I would expect them to attack him. Although some of his his former administration officials are the ones who are praising Romney down. 
This was also coming from the media. People in the media, journalists and commentators alike, who were jumping on these attacks and repeating them as truth. And so Romney was called a sexist over that. He was called a racist. At one point, Joe Biden gave one of his infamous remarks where he said that the Romney-Ryan campaign would drag black people back to the past in chains. So that's, you know, that, that was a way they used to attack Mitt Romney as a racist. And the media ran with all of this uncritically in 2012. This even included when Harry Reid went to the Senate floor and lied there on the floor about Romney's taxes, saying that he had proof that Romney hadn't paid his taxes. And when he was confronted about that after the campaign, Reid just smirked and said, Obama won. So that was the end of that discussion. These people don't respect Mitt Romney. There is no respect for him. They didn't respect John McCain either. There's an old saying on the right when it comes to the media in particular that the only good conservative, the only good Republican is a dead one, because that's the only time you will see them come out and talk about how much they like and respect that given person. This was true of John McCain, where you saw all the outpouring of support, even though these same people didn't like anything that he did prior to that and in his run for president, or in any of the ways that he opposed the Obama administration for eight years after the election. It was the same for Mitt Romney during 2012. It's We've kind of seen some, some mild repairing of George W. Bush's perception in the media just because he's not coming out as either you know fully pro-Trump or really anti-Trump. So he's just sort of doing his thing as he always, always done. And now it's true of, of Mitt Romney where he is all right in their eyes. And the only reason that he's all right in their eyes is either A, they can use him as a battering ram against the conservatives, or truly he has no political power, and so he is utterly meaningless. And it's really that last point here that is true for Romney, because since impeachment, he chose to come out against Trump then, and you can just go back. I wrote a piece about impeachment for the dispatch. It was one of the first ones that they published for me. And in that one, I talk through all the politics of it, and it's abundantly clear if you go back and you look through the politics and piece through how it actually happened that Mitt Romney really has no political power in the Senate or over the Trump administration. He is a non-factor. So when he does things like this and he's politically useless, he is fine by the press now. Jonah Goldberg was right in the column that he wrote that the media owes Mitt Romney an apology and they should give him one for all this stuff. For what they said and what they did, that won't happen. There was a piece on Vox, actually, that argued that all those attacks that just went through, they were perfectly fine, and they were all in the spirits of a good presidential campaign. Well, if that's true, then what is wrong with all the attacks that Donald Trump launches forth? That is the, the, you know, the hole that you have to square here. If what you said about Mitt Romney was fine in 2012, then what are wrong? what's wrong with the, just the volume of the similar type of attacks that Donald Trump launches against everybody? Because the last time I checked, when the media did that and they point all these things out about Trump, they call him a threat to democracy. If that's true, they need to go back and check what they did in 2012 because that laid the groundwork to making voters in the Republican Party numb to any anything said negative about Donald Trump in 2016. It helped pave the way because, and it really 2008 did too, because when you just launch all these same type attacks against McCain and against Romney that you did against Trump, people are just going to tune it out. 
because they do not care at that point. Because they know that you're if you're going to say the same things, this, launch the same kind of attacks against Mitt Romney, against who it didn't account against, and also against Trump, then they're just going to say, well, the attacks don't matter at all. That may not be rational, but that's where we are now. So that's the quick hit on Mitt Romney. And it's just, there's, I think it's, I think Goldberg is absolutely right. The media owes Romney apology for what they did, and they need to fix their coverage of all this because that has to change. That is what helped lead us to this moment where we are, where we are in the middle of the re-election campaign of Donald J. Trump. So, that brings us to the first segment in this week's show, talking about the continuing protests. And there are legitimate protests, there are legitimate grievances, and then there's stuff that you're, that's happening in here that's not legitimate at all and is not based at all either on the death of George Floyd or on Black Lives Matter or on anything in particular. It's just just rage coming out from the far left. And you get this most closely when you look at Chaz, which a lot of people have been jumping on this week and talking about, because Chaz is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Chaz is a short version of saying all of that, set up in Seattle, Washington, where protesters have taken over. A few weeks ago, I said, you know, you you had to keep multiple ideas in your head. You have to make sure that all these things are true when you do that. And the first one you need to, you need to establish is that the killing of George Floyd was bad. And, and I see people on the right who say this is some kind of hoax or some kind of conspiracy to detract attention away from, insert whatever thing that they want the media to focus on. And it's just not that. How George Floyd died was wrong. The police officer involved shouldn't have done it that way. And what he did should send him to jail. That is clear police misconduct. And if he's able to go free, that is even more of a sign that an overhaul of how we handle police misconduct needs to occur. It's going to have to occur state by state, but you're going to see a push for the same thing to happen nationwide. So that's the first thing you have to do. And the second thing you need to establish here is that police shootings are not the be-all, end-all on how you establish police misconduct. And I see a lot of people on the right doing this in particular, and that that what they basically do is they say, well, there's not a lot of police shootings of blacks in general. Those are lower. And because of that, there is no racism. That is the implicit assumption that they're making there. And that's not the full picture of what we're looking at here, because George Floyd was not shot. It was a chokehold that got him, where a man kneeled on him for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. That is police misconduct. There is no reason for the police to do that. And so you can't just look at police shootings and say, well, there's no racism because of this. You have to look at the full story. You have to look at how they are stopping people. They're stopping, there's stops and frisks. There's, you know, there's way other ways that police can use force. There's all sorts of things here that when you look at it and you break it apart, you see that there is potentially systemic racism that needs to be addressed, if not in every city, in, but in a lot of cities and states. I believe it was it was uh, it's in a piece that I've got coming out soon that mentions Baltimore 
specifically as one of the case studies and where there was explicit systemic racism and you didn't need to use police shootings to do it. You just had to look at the actions of the police department. And if you go through Baltimore, you just saw all kinds of things going wrong. You saw police planting evidence. In one case, there's a police officer who planted evidence on a black man and he had his body cam going the entire time. And they knew that whatever they said would go because there was no accountability. There was no one's going to get caught or anything. This went on for years and they violated multiple forms of constitutional right. There was multiple forms of abuse. There was just, there was bad things happening up and down. And the Department of Justice called them out for this type of racism because it was happening against certain people. And that's just one city where this type of thing was happening. If you did a systemic review of all police departments, you would find others out there. And one, we don't have we don't have the ability to go through and investigate all of them, and there's no need to. We just need to go in and start installing these solutions that we know can help fix this type of stuff everywhere. In my newsletter, I went through it. And I've talked through it here. There are there are things you can do that would help clear a lot of these bad apples out of the bunch because the police are just not one of those types of forces where you want to have those types of bad apples. So. That's the second thing you have to keep in mind. You can't just lump everything and and see things as a whole. You have to include all of the evidence here together. You can't just use one data point to say, oh, you know, this is how this is, and that's how you have to look at it. So the, the third point here is that the looting and the violent protests are bad. And I've seen a lot of people on the left try to justify that the looting and the violent parts of these protests where they destroy property and buildings, that these are good. And yes, I, I, I hear the points they make on how you know, you know violent protests are a sign of unheard people, and that is all well and true. But the white people at these protests who are doing this are not unheard. I've seen videos. They've been few and sparse where black people have been involved in, a lot, in some of the violence. But for the most part, a lot of the violence that is happening here, a lot of the spray paint, a lot of the, in the UK, there was a video going around of of, of people fighting the police there, and they were all white men. So you cannot sit here and say, oh, this is all good, because there are a lot of white people here who are just spoiling to fight with authorities. It's not about George Floyd. It's not about racism. It's that these people want to clash with police. And that's wrong. You have to call that out, and you have to throw those people in jail. They cannot be allowed to continue to distract and cause destruction because that is not about fixing the problems of systemic racism, either with police or in our society. That is just about pure rank lawlessness. Those types of people cannot be allowed. There was a, there was a viral moment where they, people were talking about how Wendy's burned down, and black people were there, and they filmed it because they said, we've got to show that this is a white person setting this building on fire because if we don't, people are going to blame us. And they're right. Without any video, people naturally go, well, this is about George Floyd, so it must have been black people who burned this down. And that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. And they were right to film this. They, you've got to catch these people in the act because they are the ones who are destroying this movement and getting people to focus on other things. You have to call out this looting. You have to call out the destruction. And you've got to get these people off the streets. You can't just sit there with the police and not do anything. If you're going to be destructive, you have to be removed because there is a real point here. You have to go back to the first part where we covered this. There is a very real point here on injustice that has to be solved. 
And if you're allowing, what happens on the left and right is they allow this looting and this destruction to sort of take over, and they want to argue about that. You just have to call this out and arrest these people and get them out of the streets, because they're not supposed to be there. It's not about them, and they're making that about themselves. So there are solutions here that we can get through to help solve some of this, but that's not happening in this case, and you've got to call this stuff out. So... That's sort of a broad overview, some of the big ideas that you have to keep in mind. Some of them, what you see people do is they cherry pick one of these and say, well, this is true, so we're going to cast out all the others, and you cannot do that. And it's that last point about the looting and the property destruction that leads us to Seattle. Now, we've seen some other people, other cities set up these types of zones elsewhere, too, but it's really Seattle that's the forefront of this, where they set up... CHAZ, or the AZ, which is short for the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. So I believe it was either a few days ago or a week ago, you had a group of protesters who moved in through this several block area of downtown Seattle, where Capitol Hill is, and they took over. They kicked out all the people, all the businesses, all the policemen. Everybody left, and these people took over and said, this is our area. And they basically declared it a new free state. And we know they did this because they started establishing borders. They had their own, they're not calling it a police force, but it is a police force. But they, and they've got all these rules and everything. So they're trying to set up their own, what they call an autonomous zone, where they are free from the rule of state and local officials and even the federal government. But that's not going to happen at all. So this is just a city area, and it's full of these types of protesters living in, you know, a makeshift tent city. So if you're, if you, if you think back, this should, you know, take you back to Occupy Wall Street because that's exactly it's it's almost the exact same type of deal. And the first Occupy movement that was, I believe, it was on Zuccotti Park somewhere in New York. That's where that was in 2011. And so this it really is the same thing. It's not surprising this is happening in Seattle. If you go back and you look at Seattle's history, they had the you know the violent protests with the WTO back in the 90s. They've had other similar outbursts up there. So this is just who they are. This is who the people up there tend to do. This is what just you know this is what you would expect if you go up there. So there are generally when you're looking at Chaz, you're looking at this autonomous zone. There's generally three ways to look at this, and the third is where we're going to settle in because it's how I view this. In the end, the first way is that these people, you know, they're just trying to form some form of alternate government and the government, which does exist, is not enforcing any laws and it's not kicking the protesters out. So this is just wrong on that front because you're allowing people to take over a certain part of the city that they have no right to do, which is generally true. People do not have a right to go into government property and declare it their own and kick everybody out. That is not a right that protesters like this have, and the city is fully within its right to go in with force and kick them out. So there's a general anger on that part that you can see on the right and sometimes on the center left, depending on what their views are. That's pretty common. The second way to view it, you see more more on the right, which is where they're angry. They're angry at the first part, but they're also angry at the hypocrisy here. Because they would say, and justifiably so, if this was a right-wing group doing the exact same thing, would Seattle allow this to happen? And the answer most likely is no. 
you would not see any city allow a right-wing group armed to the teeth, you know, doing, you know, you think of an open carry Second Amendment protest or something, or a pro-life demonstration where they go in and take over buildings, or any other right-wing group. If this was them, they would not be able to do that. They would get kicked out, and the force would be used to, to kick them out of these areas. And we know this. We've seen this happen in other situations. In 2014, you had the standoff with, with the, the Bundys over, over whether or not they owe or whether or not they should pay for great, you know, illegal grazing on public property out west. And there were violent standoffs there. You see other conservatives who are pointing to Waco and really anything like that. We know that people view people on the right differently because in 2009 and 2010, the Tea Party was castigated from top to bottom. They were compared to a hate group for that entire period of time. And people, you know, you had people like Jon Stewart saying, oh, we need to have a return to sanity moment and we don't need to have these Tea Parties or, or, you know, Occupy or anything like that. We just need to have a return to sanity because everybody's insane right now. And the Tea Parties were, you know, where they would pick up their trash after they left these areas. You, you hit some of these protesters who hit, form these autonomous zones, and they just destroy everything. So that is the second main way people view this, which is that they see the hypocrisy and they're angry because this shows a selective bias, where some speech gets to get away with things that other kinds of speech does not. And there's a hint of truth to that. In fact, it would be interesting to see a right-wing version of this try to set up in Seattle where they try to take over other public property. That would be sort of an interesting law school-type hypothetical where another group tries to come in and do the exact same thing. So that that's the second way. You point out the hypocrisy. The third way, though, and this is how I view it, is that you just laugh at them. Because this is, at least for now, because if this happens anything like Occupy, you're going to start seeing rape and assault stories start coming out. Because that's what happened at Occupy. You started seeing those come out where people were mistreating people, people were getting abused. And that was when it started falling apart. And things just all fall, fell apart. And they had to start cleaning up the aftermath of everything that happened there. But in general, I, I think you just have to laugh at this. Because it is a laughable endeavor. Chaz is not... You can't take what this is as serious. It's not a serious statement of anything. These people, for the most part, especially the white kids who are out here doing stupid things, they're just morons. They do not understand what they're doing. This is complete Lord of the Flies type stuff. These guys are a real-life political philosophy, sociological experiment come to life. This is They're proving literally every part of classical conservatism correct. Just about on every front. Especially if you're looking back to people like Hobbes and Locke in political philosophy, where they're talking about the state of nature and the need to impose order to prevent violence from happening and to secure liberty. That's what they're, they're trying to do in this autonomous zone. They're trying to secure their own liberty from a what they would deem a tyrannical government. And so what do they do first? Well, the first thing they do, ironically enough, is that they invade. This is, you can compare this in a way to sort of like how the pilgrims would go in, where they're trying to take over a space from people who are already there. So they are their own version, their own weird, bizarro world version of a colonizer coming in and trying to take over a space. So... And I know, if these are all leftists, that if you go in there and you talk to them about imperialism and colonialism, they will blast that as wrong and say, well, what are you guys doing then? So that's sort of the first thing they're doing here. They're taking over a space that others own and declaring it their own property. Now, of course, no one owns individual properties. There was, 
I didn't see if it was confirmed or not that this was a real thing, but some people were posting pictures of a screenshot of a discussion where a guy was complaining that his laptop computer had been stolen, and people were saying, well, maybe you just need to take into fact that a, a less fortunate member of the collective here needed it more than you, and you should think of it as an unknown donation that was coming forward. So that's the kind of mindset that we're looking, that we're seeing here. It, it's it's just raw and pure, stupid socialist, communist thought. These people have no idea what they're doing, but they do know that they have to set up their own place. So the first thing they do is they establish border walls. You heard that right. The first thing they did was they established borders by setting up fencing. So they did. They basically ran on the same first platform here. They had Donald Trump build the wall. Well, they built their own wall through fencing and police thing barricades they had. And then, just for funsies, they also set up border checks. You had to be able to check in and say that you are a part of the people who took over there. They were trying to keep out specifically right-wing reporters. They didn't want videos of themselves getting out into the world. So, you know, they're they're doing that. They're establishing some forms of censorship. They are attacking people there. I saw one kid steal another person's American flag and run off to destroy it. So there's there's no there's no form of law here per se. There's just the rules of the collective. But they had to set up border, they had to set up border security, and they had to check people there. So you have border security and building a wall. So good job, guys. You've established the first two planks of Donald Trump's platform. So that's the first thing they did. The second thing they did was, you know, they go in to, to claim that they're going to defund or abolish the police. What is one of the first things they do? They set up their own private community patrol groups, armed community patrol groups. What is an armed community patrol group? Well, it's a person who has a weapon and goes around and just checks on everyone to make sure nothing bad is happening. Who else does something like that? It's called the police. They have this thing called a police beat. Where they are armed, and they just go check around and make sure and show that the presence is made so nobody does anything wrong. In fact, if you're thinking about that sort of in the abstract, if you've got an armed community patrol walking around ensuring everything is safe, you know what you're doing? You're following along with the broken windows theory, too, where you're going around and <laughs> sending your armed patrols into communities to make sure everybody feels safe and that no criminals feel unsafe. So they've effectively established Rudy Giuliani-style policing tactics, which they would all have decried beforehand. So we have Donald Trump's stances on borders and security, Rudy Giuliani's stances, Mike Bloomberg's too, to some extent, since he was fine with it early on, stances on policing. They set up all these private security forces to do that. They have their own forms of law and order. They have public smoking places because they don't want people getting bothered by people smoking around others. They want to protect people, so you have a public smoking place. Those are enforced. So it's just... you. And then the best part here is you have a guy walking around who claims to be the warlord of the entire thing. And he is the warlord because he has what I've heard is an AK-47 and a sidearm. I don't know if he legitimately has those, but he does seem to be the one who's most well-armed in this. So you have your strongman leader who leads by force. So you have all the makings here of a basic tribal community that is fearful of others on the outside and is trying to keep them out. So it is the most tribal of tribal instincts focused on its own self-preservation and security. So congratulations, you've, you've, you've formed the first, 
state of nature style environment where people are trying to break in order to break apart society and, and claim that they're going to fix it. They are rebuilding all of the same things, just worse versions because they do not have a constitution that any of them would follow. So your rights or your personal liberty could be violated at any time because if they so choose so, they could all vote to have you kicked out, removed, or abused in any way form or fashion. And that was the response of the Enlightenment era. We have to write down our rights and enforce them on the government. That was Magna Carta in a a nutshell. So what you really have here is people who do not know how government is designed, trying to redesign it, and each time they think they have an epiphany, all they're really doing is repeating really old versions of political and philosophical arguments we've had for centuries, if not millennia. So that's where we are. Chaz is single-handedly proving every part of conservatism right. So I would like to thank Chaz and thank people on the left because everything that you're doing here, the, the, the colonizing that you're doing with Chad, the imperialism, the invasion that you've done here is proving that you have to have these basic orders of law and order in place in society. You are, in fact, playing into Donald Trump's law and order campaign that he's trying to run. Donald Trump could not have scripted a better thing to have happened than Chaz because all he has to point to and say, this is the future that liberals want. Chaz. Do you want to live here? And everybody with a brain is going to say, no, we do not want to live there at all. We would not want Chaz running a response to a pandemic. They don't know what they're doing. One of the most hilarious things is Chaz has set up a community garden And they've put gardening in elsewhere either, trying to create more green spaces. Their version of gardening is to take potting soil, toss it on the top of the dirt. Let me take that back. Not the dirt. Just on the grassy areas or maybe on the stone or flat out asphalt or stone areas. Throw potting soil on top of that and then take plants, take them out of their pots and set them on top of said planting soil and claim they've created a garden. This is for real. You can go and look at the pictures. Even more hilariously is the homeless guy who ran in there and then proceeded to take over the garden, put up a fence around it, and then declare it was his own autonomous zone within the autonomous zone. I don't know how they're going to how they're going to claim they can kick him out because he did the same thing they did. So that is the fun part there. These people are categorically insane and they should not be taken seriously, but they are providing all these old and same lessons that political philosophy has talked about and solved. So it really just shows they don't know their own history and they have no solutions on how to fix anything. And so if you have people who are promoting this, you can safely, you can just safely mute them in your social media timelines because they have nothing interesting to say. So that's all I've got for that. When we get back, we'll talk about the latest on the coronavirus. So as we've been doing every week for what feels like months now, we're going to start out with the top line numbers and then work our way down with the coronavirus. So as of end of day Sunday, when you're looking at the total number of tests run, we have 23.5 million tests that have run. If you're just looking week over week, we've run 3.3 million tests. So that is a massive number. Uh, Overall, about 2.1 million of those tests are coming back positive. If you're looking at trend lines overall, nationally, the positive case rate that we're seeing where, you know, if you're testing 
about four to five percent ha- are coming back with a positive test. So it's it's low, but it's not as low as we would want it to go. Four to five percent is about what Tennessee has seen for basically the entirety of this outbreak, except for a few outlier exceptions in a few weeks. So it's steady. It's not a spike, but it is a steady amount of cases that come in. And, you know, at that rate, you always have run threat of a super spreader breaking out and creating a pop in any number of one of these cities. We do have good news, though, because Sunday featured 358 deaths, which is the lowest number of daily deaths we've seen since March 26th. That is incredible news where we're seeing nationally the death rate continue to fall. So even though we have a lot of cases, a lot of active cases, we do not have the deaths and hospitalizations that suggest this is a bad set of cases that we have. Because you can have cases of this, but if they're not overwhelming your your medical sector, your healthcare system then you can largely get by with that. You don't want a ton of cases because you don't know the long-term outcomes from everyone getting this disease. But if you can survive it and not overwhelm your healthcare system, you will accept that as an outcome. And eventually you'll probably reach herd immunity after a longer period of time. So we are good on hospitalization and death rates overall if you're just looking at the country as a whole. And if that continues to stay low, then that just means we're going to have a steady amount of cases from now until we get a vaccine. So that that is unequivocally good news. The bad news out of all that is that we've plateaued, basically. We've plateaued at the 4 to 5% rate. We've plateaued around with the hospitalization rate. So that is news that you have to take into account. Now, obviously, when you're talking about a healthcare system, Responding to this, you have to get local. You have to know what's happening with a specific hospital. So a certain community could pop up, but the rest of the nation can look good. And so a lot of this is both regional and not just regional, but city-based. So if one, one city can look worse than the other. We've seen this with some specific states. I believe Arizona is one of them where they're, they're seeing a lot more. But the caveat to that is, is that the states that are seeing... A true blue, what I would consider a surge, which is a straight pop-up, they didn't really have a surge previously. So this is more of other places are seeing a surge that didn't see it the first time. So if you have cases, and a lot of them, but not hospitalizations or deaths, that suggests that you have a milder strain of the virus making the rounds and not the most lethal version. And if you look at a state like Tennessee, that's kind of what has happened here Tennessee had always, has always had a lot of cases, and at, at its peak, the positive rate, you know, when you're doing plenty of testing, it was around between 8 to 10%, so that's pretty high. And then it dropped below 5%, which is where it is now, but we're still doing a ton of testing, which means you're going to get a lot of positive tests out of that. But out of that, the death rates remain pretty low, even when you could include the probable numbers, so the probable deaths, the probable cases that we have. So when you start factoring that all that in, it really looks like we have a milder strain of the virus going around in some of these other places. And it looks milder if you're able to keep it out of uh, high-profile areas, so nursing homes and places like that where you have an elderly community or a closed-off community where you don't need a virus getting 
you know, if everybody's locked into the same thing, you don't want the virus running free that way. So that will make, that's kind of the situation we're dealing with. And so that makes decisions about, you know, bringing back school. That's going to be interesting. The closer we get to fall, it is likely that most places are just going to say, just wear masks, wash your hands and do social distancing and call it a day because we have to have school. People are not going to be able to stand a full just school season, keeping everybody at home. That is, that's just not something that people can do. And the other thing about that that is impacting national numbers is that New York City has long been the problem and just in deaths, cases, and everything. And their positivity rate on their testing has has dropped steadily over time to now. This week, they, they went below 2%, 1.6% of the tests they got back were positive for the virus. So that is helping make national numbers look better when you have one of the worst hotspots in the country finally get its act under control, and they are beginning to reopen now. So that is sort of where we, we are. And like I said, the states where, you know, I use quotation marks here, where spikes are happening, they're mainly where places have not seen a spike before, and everywhere else, so like Tennessee, Florida, and some of these others, you're just seeing a trend back up, away from the the lowest parts where they had their their lockdowns. And now, it's moving back up to some of the higher parts. So the question is whether or not they're going to get hospitalizations and deaths out of this. And hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging indicator. So the way it goes is when you have the spread of the virus, you have an infected person walks into an area. They then have to infect other people. Well, whether or not you know that infection took place is going to take about 72 hours, depending on how fast it takes. And then after that, before a person gets tested, they have to show symptoms, which could take another up to 72 hours. And then once you get tested, you have to get your results back. And sometimes that can take another three days. Uh, there was been a few people here in Tennessee who are prominent uh, journalists, and they were, you know, say, hey, I've got to get tested today. And then three days later, they, they give their test results. So it's still taking some time to get those results just due to the sheer number that we're doing. He may be able to get them back the same day, but that's not always true. And then from there, not just showing symptoms, you have to go from symptoms to needing medical care. And so that's going to be, you know, you're, you're already talking now up to seven to 10 days later. There have been cases where somebody has gone from infected to in the hospital, I think around five days, but usually it's between seven to 10 days. And then to convert, if you're, you know, if it's a truly bad case and they end up dying from it, you're talking a long process. You're talking three to four weeks at mo, where that you're at the earliest you're going to see something happen from that, and sometimes longer. It depends how how good a person's body is at firing it off. So, hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging indicator. We're seeing some states with more cases, and the question is, what does that mean? It, it, does it mean the protests are causing this, or is it just reopening that is causing this overall? And both sides are trying to are trying to do that. There were back to back headlines that NBC News ran. The first one was talking about a Black Lives Matter protest that showed, you know, all these people crowded on the streets doing all that, and they didn't mention the coronavirus. And then the next headline showed the Trump campaign talking about how it was going to roll out camp, you know, it was going to roll out campaigns, in person campaigns. And he talked about the coronavirus there. So they're looking to blame this on one side or the other. And we just don't know if that's going to take place or not. Tennessee today had a situation where they had 800 cases come in. That is much higher than normal. Usually we've been seeing somewhere between the three to 600 mark. And so 800 caused me to raise an eyebrow. 
But there, we have no idea what, why 800 came in today. It was more than 800, but we don't know why that many came in. There's no contact tracing that's going to tell us why that took place. And the recovery number was low, so we only had about 130-ish. It was under 150 people who recovered on the day. I'd have to go back and look. But when you look at that, you're saying, okay, that makes a pretty large increase in the number of active cases in a single day compared to what happens overall. But it's just one day's total, and you can't extrapolate from there. So this could be a point where you're looking at the first true numbers that we have after all these, after all of the, you know, the protests have been happening and reopening is in full swing. We could be getting our first look at that. And it could be a random one day search. We, we do not know. Uh, we do know, you know, whatever happens, fingers are going to get pointed in both directions. Is it the protests or is it reopening? And without solid contact tracing, no one really knows. Although, it, there's two ways you could argue that it's one way or the other. The first way you would do this is you would, you would look at when a spike happens. Because you have to remember, reopening in places like Tennessee, Florida, and elsewhere, they've been reopening since the 1st of May, maybe end of April, depending on what type of services that you're talking about here. So they've already been open for a month, over a month, going on two months at this point. So you would have expected that if it was only reopening, the mere act of reopening, even in a phase one or phase two status, that you would have seen something happen, a spike come from that. And there wasn't really anything there. There was just a plateau. So to say that there's a spike now, you would have to say there was some other circumstance set in, and you would point to the protest saying that case numbers were fine until the protest came in. Once we started getting data in, then we can blame it on the protest as being the event that messed up the entire reopening process. But there's no clean way to do that without for sure contract tracing of new cases. Now, if you wanted to say it was reopening instead of the protests, what you would have to do, you need a place that did the opposite. And the only place that I know where you'd have the opposite version of this would be New York City. So New York has had a lot of protests, but they've also, they're also still shut down. They're just now beginning, I think it was this past week, they entered into phase one. So if you have protests happening and no future or, you know, if your numbers don't go back up and you had these protests, then you can say, well, we have a control example here in New York where protests happened and we didn't see numbers go back up until we had a reopening period and because the protests didn't affect anything at all. But that's looking forward. We don't know how New York is going to handle this, and we don't know what's going to happen with their protests. It's too early to tell there. Uh, while the protests have been occurring, their numbers have been dropping every week, which is a good thing. But it also may be a little early to tell whether or not their actions are making any difference on the protests, too. So... There's no way to tell here. Each state has done something different, so you have to look at what they did, then look at when the spikes happen, and then try to figure out all the variables that kick into place. That's not going to stop people. They're all going to argue that it was their political opponents that ruined this if a spike occurs. And of course, if a spike doesn't truly occur, then the coronavirus is over as a story. I don't think that's what's going to happen, though. I do think we're going to see numbers tick back up here. Whether or not we have to squash a new curve, I don't know. As I've said for the last few weeks here, I, I just flat out don't believe another shutdown's coming. There's no political will there to commit to another shutdown in the middle of an election season, and that goes true for Democrats and Republicans. You may see you may see a governor 
or you know, or city officials say, well, I need to shut down my city, but you're not going to see the widespread push from the federal government to shut everything down. You just have to be smart with what you're doing. And with all those unknowns, there is some good news here. And the good news is that there were two hairdressers in Missouri who were both tested positive for uh, the coronavirus. But before that, they knew that they they had it. They were still they were still had dealing with customers, and they had 140 people who they they worked on their hair in some capacity. And so after they learned about that, they did contract tracing and then learn that not a single person ended up getting the coronavirus from getting their hair cut there. Everyone was fine. And, you know, the two hairdressers, they were wearing masks, they were following all the procedures. So at a minimum, what this suggests is that if if you wear a mask, if you wash your hands, if you're doing proper social distancing, it is going to make it much harder for the virus to spread as a whole. You're still going to get positive cases, but by doing that, you're going to, no matter you know if the protests are spreading it or if reopening is spreading it, very simple measures will help stop the spread of this overall and help get us to an eventual point where we get to a vaccine. So that is the good news there. We may not know if a spike happens where it's coming from, but we do know that we can eventually stop it. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Make sure to look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. The newsletter goes out early Friday morning. And this week, keep your heads up. I may have something special coming out this week. And so, you know, if you're signed up, you will get all of that before the newsletter goes out. So, you know, everything will be in that issue when it comes out on Friday. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I will see you guys in the next episode.